We're starting the book of Colossians. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament as we'll be looking at another one of Paul's letters. Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this section of scripture and we look at the supremacy of Christ, we pray that you'd give us fresh eyes to see you, Jesus. We realize that you're preeminent, that you're supreme, and we place you as the top priority in our lives. We thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would lead us and guide us in the study, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would do what you want in this particular service. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at the book of Colossians, it's really us being fortified in Christ. This church is struggling with false teaching, with false doctrine. Paul is writing to them. He's the author. He's never met them before. That's what's unique about this letter, this epistle, is Paul has never been to the city of Colossae. We know that from chapter 2, verse 1. He says very specifically, I've not seen you with my own eyes. But yet he's burdened to write this letter to them because he sees the heresy that's coming in to the church. The best way to fix this is to remind them of the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And as they understand who Jesus is, then they're fortified in Christ. The word fortified, it means to strengthen by building a military defense, such as walls and trenches. So picture a life that's protected, a life that is is fortified. And ultimately, that is found in Christ, in understanding that who he is. I hope tonight that you're encouraged, that you feel strengthened, that you feel fortified as we look at the supremacy of Christ. This letter is written, no doubt, by the Apostle Paul. We'll see that in verse 1. He's the author that God chose to use. Those receiving the letter are in Colossae, and it was 100 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus is right on the Mediterranean Sea in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, an area of the world that's in turmoil uh, this evening that's being turned upside down. The purpose of this letter is to correct the false teaching. The four primary false teaching that was taking place is that there was this teaching that was saying you needed to go back and observe the laws of the Old Testament. There was an emphasis on deeper knowledge, which led to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this understanding that there was always something deeper, always something more. They also were having angels as being mediators to God, still something that is popular today, that somehow angels can be that link between you and the Lord that only Christ can provide. And then finally, they were denying the deity of Jesus Christ. So these are some pretty serious things that were coming against the church of Colossae. The theme is the preeminence of Christ, is Christ's authority. The outline for the book is chapter 1 is doctrine, Christ's preeminence declared. And chapter 2 is danger, Christ's preeminence defended. And then chapters 3 and 4 is our duty or our devotion, Christ's preeminence demonstrated. So we're going to be focusing on Christ throughout this epistle. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. 
If you've been studying with us on Wednesday nights, by this point, you're familiar with the Apostle Paul as we went through Acts and are looking at his epistles, his letters to these churches. Paul wasn't always Paul. He was Saul prior. And God touched his life, transformed his life as he was on the road to persecute Christians. What a radical transformation. As I was reading in the book of Acts this week, I was struck how Paul never left Damascus after his conversion initially. So he comes to Damascus to arrest Christians. He gets saved. He stays in Damascus, goes to the synagogue, and starts telling Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And just prior to that, he was a Jewish man arresting all those that were saying that Christ was the Messiah. After a period of time, then he's chased out of Damascus, a life that was truly touched by the Lord. And here he says that he's an apostle. And the word apostle little, literally means sent out one. The Holy Spirit was sending out the apostle Paul to start and to encourage Christians. His life was always on the move, was always going from place to place, from city to city. When he includes this title, an apostle, it sets the tone for the letter. It lets us know that he's dealing with weighty things, things that his spiritual authority would have to be considered. He says, by the will of God, he knows that the Lord wanted him to be apostle, that he was doing the exact work that God had called him to do. And Timothy, our brother, Timothy was traveling with the apostle Paul. Paul never did ministry alone. He believed in the value of a team. Always believed in having those traveling alongside with him. This is who he's writing to, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. The word saint means holy, and it's our position in Christ. It's not this idea that if you live a perfect life or a life that is above average for Christ or exceptional for Christ after you die, that you gain sainthood that's given to you by the church. This is a position that's given to you by Christ. You're holy in Christ. You're a saint in Christ and also to the faithful brethren. The church was faithful. They were committed to the Lord, committed to walking in truth. Colossae's not a significant city from a biblical perspective. What do I mean by that? It's not mentioned in the book of Acts. So like the city of Ephesus is mentioned so much through, throughout scripture, we don't know much about this church apart from this letter. Also, this city at this point, historians is telling us, is starting to be on the decline economically. At one point, they were really thriving because they were known for the cloth industry, especially for dyeing cloths, but eventually it died out. <laughs> and so Paul is writing to a city that doesn't have great significance, a church that we don't know a lot of the background about, but they're significant to Paul. I think Paul had that heart to see every believer as being significant, every church as being significant to care for and to, to love on. Continues in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace were the Greek and Hebrew greeting. Grace was the Greek greeting. Peace was the Hebrew greeting, shalom. I have one friend who's Hebrew, he's Jewish, and he always greets with shalom. If he sends you a text or an email, it's shalom. It's, it's consistently, to this day, the greeting of, of the Hebrew people. 
If you studied the New Testament, you know that this is the way that Paul always greeted Christians. In all of his writings, he says, grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace always comes before peace. You never see Paul including peace before grace. It's not an accident because God's unconditional, unmerited favor, his, his gift of grace that he gives to us, when we experience that from Jesus, it results in peace, doesn't it? The peace is a byproduct of the grace. What I find interesting is Paul believed in these words that he was declaring. These were a blessing that he was declaring upon God's people. This wasn't just a trite saying that he would throw out there, but it's something that he really, really believed in. And he's saying, may God's grace be afresh in your life. May God's peace be fresh in your life. This isn't something that's just past tense. We need God's grace this evening, don't we? God's ready to give his grace. And when we understand his grace, then we're able to walk in his peace. If he would give us grace for salvation, I'm sure he'd want to give us grace for what we need in our lives, the situations that we find ourselves in. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. This is a great attitude to have towards believers, one of thankfulness and prayerfulness. May I remind you, this is not a group of people that Paul had a face-to-face relationship with. Not like the church of Philippi, where they were rich in personal history. Simply a church that he had heard testimony of. And he says, from the first time have I heard of your faith and your love, I decided to be thankful for you. Paul was excited that there was a group of believers in this part of Asia Minor. And he began to pray for them. This shows Paul's belief in the power of prayer. Do you know you can encourage and impact believers that you may never meet? Maybe there's a particular country, a particular place, and all of this turmoil, you, you've heard of how there's churches that have began to be birthed, people that have been getting saved in the Middle East, and you start praying for those group of, of believers. Maybe you, you have a heart for a particular part of our country, a particular city that you haven't spent a lot of time in. You don't know the churches. You're not familiar with the pastors, but you know the spiritual climate in that section of the country, and you're praying for believers there. It's a tremendous way to be able to, to have impact. May God convict us tonight if our attitude has fallen from thankfulness and prayerfulness towards believers, because that's where the enemy wants to get us. He's the accuser of the brethren, so he'll show us one another's shortcomings. He'll bring that out and he'll highlight that. And we want to get to this place where we can be prayerful and we can be thankful. In verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Two great things to be known for. What's resounding from our lives is it faith and love. That was true for the people in Colossae, the church in Colossae. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Where's their hope laid up? It's in heaven. We find faith, we find love, and we find hope all connected in these verses. Paul's saying your hope's in heaven. Hope's more than a wish or a whim. It's more than saying, 
I hope the Broncos have a good season this year. They may. That might be a decent wish or, or whim. Or they might not because they don't have a quarterback. Right? I hope I get a raise this year. Or I hope that my car doesn't break down. Those are wishes and whims that aren't based on a whole lot. Could go one way, could, could go another way. Is that biblical hope? Biblical hope is the confident expectation of coming good. That we know that God is good and he does good. And where is the anchor? Where is the foundation of our hope? It's in heaven. It's not this life. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm passing through. I know my life here is temporary. What if we really lived our lives like we were temporary residents? If we could lay hold of that tonight. I'm putting my hope in heaven. And Paul reminds them of that. It says, which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it also in all the world and bringing forth fruit as it has heard among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. He's talking about how the gospel had effect on these believers, that Jesus died for their sins and rose again, changed their life from, from the inside out. Not only their lives, but throughout the whole world throughout the known world, throughout the Roman Empire, as the gospel was spread, people's lives were changed. For us to be encouraged tonight, look at the spread of the gospel. Look at how people's lives have been touched and changed by the gospel. There's power in the gospel. Believe the gospel, share the gospel, because the gospel brings fruit in people's lives. Verse 7, As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who has declared to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras is also mentioned in Philippians 1, verse 23, with great compliments. He was a companion and co-labor with Paul. He had been with the church of Colossae. He brings word to the apostle Paul of what's happening in this church. He's a faithful minister And he brings the news, the good and the bad, about the church of Colossae. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. He says, from the first day that I heard about your church and what was going on, I didn't cease to pray for you. We have a great tendency and temptation to stop praying. Paul's talking here about longevity in prayer, perseverance in prayer. It's one thing to be moved to pray for a few days, and it's another thing to say, I'm not going to cease. I'm not going to stop. I bet some of you, God has called you to pray for a particular group of people or a particular person, and maybe you're not seeing the impact. You're not seeing the effect. I know the power of prayer, but it doesn't seem like it's changing their hearts in this particular situation. Don't cease. Don't give up. Don't stop. Persevere in prayer. Be faithful to continue in prayer. Samuel put it this way, the prophet in the Old Testament. As he was going out, as he was going off the scene, he was about ready to retire, if you would. He said that it would be sin for him to cease to pray for the children of Israel. Even though the leadership was being passed off to Saul, he says, I'm going to continue to pray for you. Don't give up in, in prayer. This is specifically what Paul's praying for the church of Colossae. Each of these prayers in the epistles are so meaningful. Remember in Ephesians, what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church? 
what he prayed for the church in Philippi, and now the church of Colossae, we can take these prayers and pray for others in the same way. First thing he asks is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. A great thing to pray for those you love. Pray for those that you have a heart for, believers that you haven't even met, that they would have the knowledge of his will, knowing what his will would be. Then to also pray in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God, would you give them wisdom in the decisions that they have to make in their lives? Would you give them spiritual understanding? As our students head back to the school year, God, would you give them spiritual wisdom? Would you give them spiritual understanding? May they know your will. May our junior high students, our high school students, our elementary students, God, would you help them to know your will? For us as a church, God, we want to know your will. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us spiritual understanding? That's what Paul was, was praying. It's the first thing he prays for. Verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Walk speaks of lifestyle or living out the truth. Paul's saying, I want you to live in a way that honors God. Walk worthy of the Lord in a way that is pleasing to, to the Lord. And then being fruitful in every good work. John 15, Jesus said that he's the vine, we're the branches. As we abide in him, we bear much fruit and God is glorified. It's part of a walk that pleases the Lord when fruit comes in and through our lives. Pray that for those you love. Pray that for this church and other churches. May we be fruitful. We have the spiritual fruits of, of righteousness. There's an emphasis here on every good work. Charles Spurgeon, he comments on it. Fruitful in every good work. Here is room and range enough in every good work. Have you the ability to preach the gospel? Preach it. Does a little child need comforting? Comfort it. Can you stand up and vindicate a glorious truth before thousands? Do it. Does a poor saint need a bit of dinner from your table? Send it to her. Let works of obedience, testimony, zeal, charity, piety, philanthropy all be found in your life. Do not select big things as your special line, but glorify the Lord also in the littles, fruitful in every good work. That's well said, isn't it? The range is broad in that. Every good work is an opportunity to be fruitful for God's glory. And increasing in the knowledge of God what a wonderful prayer. God, would you allow us to increase in the knowledge of God? The word knowledge, it speaks of intimate and personal knowledge. It's not all of the facts and the head knowledge about God, but it's that part of us that impacts us to the deepest level. Yes, it's understanding the facts. It's understanding the truth, but encountering it. This is the Christian life. This is what the Christian life is all about, is growing in the knowledge of God, growing in the knowledge of Christ. How's this church going to be rescued from false teaching? Growing in the knowledge of Christ. How are we going to navigate all the twists and turns of life? Growing in the knowledge of Christ. What's the greatest thing that we can pray for others? God, would they grow in the knowledge of Christ? I hope by Christmas time, our knowledge of Christ is greater than it is this evening. A year from now, 10 years from now, I hope our knowledge of Christ is, is greater. Through all of eternity, we're going to be discovering the wonders of Christ 
in a greater way. There's so much more to learn about Christ. May we never think that we've reached the ceiling. You know, that we, we've got the market on who Christ is. The depths of Christ, there's always more to learn about him. I love verse 11. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. We're going to have to be strengthened in order to be able to walk worthy of the calling. We're going to have to be strengthened in order to have wisdom. We're going to have to be strengthened by the power of his might in order to bear fruit. Jesus in John 13, he washes the disciples' feet right before he's going to be crucified at the Last Supper. It's blowing the mind of especially Peter, and he's saying, look, you got this all backwards. You shouldn't be washing my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter's like, well, in that case, you can wash all of me. Just go for it. Let's do full immersion right now. Jesus says, no, your feet, that's the only part of you that's dirty. And Jesus takes on that position of being a servant and meeting a need that no one wanted to do. And Jesus said, you'll be blessed if you follow this example. If you don't read chapter 14, which comes right after that, you miss on the power in which to be able to fulfill that command. A lot of times we get the commands of Jesus and we try to do it in our own strength. Jesus in John 14 begins to talk about the helper that's going to come to them, the Holy Spirit. And he says some far out things about the Holy Spirit. He actually says, it's going to be better for me to depart so that the Holy Spirit, the helper, can, can come to you. Jesus was external at this point. He wasn't living inside of their hearts. It would be the death, the resurrection of Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit that would allow them to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you connect John 13 with John 14, you realize it's only through the Holy Spirit that they're going to be able to live in this Christ-like fashion. And it's the same way for us. It's the help of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of theology and understanding of the Holy Spirit that's so very, very important, but don't miss the practical application of the power of the Spirit. It's daily going through our lives, emptying of our own resources, of our own strength, crying out to the Holy Spirit, saying, I want to be filled with your Holy Spirit today, moment to moment. God, as I leave this service tonight, I want to be filled with your Spirit your glorious power in order to be able to fulfill your commands, in order to walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. Notice the purpose for the power is for patience and long-suffering with joy. Now, I wish that part wasn't in there, to be quite honest, right? Why has God given us all this power? Well, so that we can be patient. What does patient mean? It means to endure. It goes right along with suffering, for a long time. That's what long suffering means. With joy. To be able to do it joyfully. To go through trial and difficulty with joy. Not happiness, but joy. Understanding who God is. That he's got it. That, that he's faithful. That's why God wants us to have the power. A lot of times we think that the power is so the difficulty will go away. But God's giving us the power so we can glorify him in the midst of the difficulty. It's for patience. It's for long-suffering with joy. Paul now goes into deep thanksgiving. This prayer for the church of Colossae just leads to this deep level 
of thanksgiving. Wouldn't you like to just sit and pray with the Apostle Paul for a few minutes? Sometimes when you pray with people, you get to the depth of their walk with the Lord. Then you start feeling like, man, my prayers are really shallow. It's like, rub-a-dub-dub, Lord, thanks for the grub. And over here, they're just in this deep place of, of thanksgiving. And Paul's just taken away in the presence of God, and he finds himself immensely thankful. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. God has qualified us. If you're taking notes tonight, write down qualified. That's the first reason that Paul is thankful. We think about the Olympic Games, and there's so much work that goes in to an athlete just qualifying to be in that Olympic event. I was listening to the news in, in the car today, and I don't know the particular race, but they were interviewing two, two ladies, two Olympic athletes, that in the course of this run, someone tripped. And then that caused a couple of these other ladies to, to trip and fall. And the first lady that, that fell, she's thinking, why do I even get up? Why do I even keep going? There's no way that I can win at this point. And the other lady that fell apparently tapped her on the shoulder and said, get up. This is the Olympics. We've got to finish, right? And she was expressing in this interview how frustrating it is to practice for eight years, 10 years of your life just to get to that race, then to know that once you've fallen down in that Olympic gold medal round, as soon as you hit that track, there's no way that you're going to win. There's no way you're going to get to the, to the, to the platform, to, to the podium, but they had to get up and finish. And here we notice that it's not our hard work, it's not our training, it's not our eight or ten years of reading our Bible that qualifies us. The Father qualifies us. He qualifies us to what? To be partakers in the inheritance. It's a big deal to be qualified, isn't it? And this is the highest standard of all. God is granting it to us through, through his grace to be partakers of the inheritance. It's a great inheritance as sons and daughters. The reason that we're in the Father's inheritance is because we're his children. He's adopted us as his, his children. The Bible tells us we're joint heirs with Christ. What an incredible inheritance that's been given to us. Notice it is present tense. We're partakers of his inheritance. It's one thing to watch a game on TV. It's one thing to watch the contest from the stands or from sitting on the bench. And it's another thing to be a partaker. It's one thing to describe a dessert to you or a wonderful meal to you. And it's another thing to be a partaker. Church, you're a partaker because God has qualified you. You're a partaker of that inheritance, present tense. Going on, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So first we're qualified. Past tense, it's already happened. You are qualified. And now you're delivered. You're delivered from the power of darkness. That happened the moment that you received Christ as your savior. If you're in Christ, you're delivered from the power of darkness. Luke 22, verse 53, describes the power of darkness at the crucifixion 
of Christ. Jesus is speaking. He said, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Saying this is your hour to crucify me, and this is the hour for power of darkness. And when Christ was killed, when he went to that place and rose again, the power of darkness was defeated. The moment we received Christ as our Savior, we were delivered out of the power of darkness. We have to remember that people that don't know Christ as their Savior, they're in the power of darkness. There's an influence that Satan has in their lives that we've been delivered from. If you're wondering, why do they think that? Why do they do that? Why do they act like that? Why do they have those priorities? Because they're in the wrong kingdom. And if they know Christ as their Savior, then they're going to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Look at the word conveyed. Conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. The word conveyed means to take from one place to another. It's deep with meaning for this time because as a nation would come in and conquer another nation, they would transfer them completely into their land. We've been talking about the Babylonians taking Judah captive. What did they do? They took them all out of Judah and they conveyed them into Babylon. And so that's what happened when we came to know Christ our Savior. He took us and he said, you know what? Bink! You're no longer under the power of darkness. And bink! Now you're in the kingdom of light. You're in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Notice how the kingdom is described. The kingdom of the Son, Jesus, of his love. What is that talking about? It's expressing the Father's love for the Son, God's dear Son. You are in the kingdom of God's dear Son. There's one thing you need to know in this kingdom, and that's that the Father loves the Son. And he gave his Son for you and for me so that we could have eternal life. So we're qualified, we're delivered, and we're redeemed. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. To redeem is to buy back. It's to release by legal ransom. It's a legal term. You're redeemed. The price of our redemption is the blood of the Lamb. That's what God paid in order for us to be purchased out of our sins. This is the unfolding message of the Bible. God giving his Son as the Lamb of God slain for our sins. Begins in Genesis, where you find a lamb slain for one man. And that's Isaac. When Isaac was to be offered on the altar by Abraham, there was a ram, there was an animal caught in the thicket. And that animal took the place of Isaac, was the substitutionary sacrifice. You go a little bit further into Exodus, children of Israel coming out of Egypt, God says, take a lamb, kill that lamb, put the blood on the door of your house. It was a lamb for a family. Judgment passed over the household that had the blood upon the door of their house. So blood of a lamb for a man, lamb for a house, and then a lamb for a nation, the Day of Atonement, the feast for the children of Israel. The lamb was slain for the sins of the whole nation. This is then pointing to Jesus. Every sacrifice, blood sacrifice, pointing to Christ Christ is in the wilderness. John the Baptist sees him, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of what? The world. 
a lamb for a man, a lamb for a nation. And now finally, a lamb for the whole world. And the blood of Jesus Christ, as we trust in Christ, results in the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness in the Greek means sending away. God has really taken your sin and he's sent them away. He's removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. This is super freeing. Forgiveness has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with the power of the blood of the Lamb. A lot of times we think it has to do with us. Do I earn this? Do I deserve this? Did I respond well enough from it? God says, no, you receive it by faith and it's totally and completely given and granted to you. We're redeemed through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Have you ever heard that term, I'm pleading the blood? You're going, that sounds kind of weird and gross and why would I plead the blood over myself and plead the blood over somebody else and creepy, you know? It's referring to the legal right. The blood is the legal right to forgiveness and for ransom. So you're saying, by I'm pleading the blood, you're saying, I'm claiming the blood. I'm believing in the blood. I'm accepting that legal ransom, and I'm holding on to it through faith. Does that make a little bit more sense? It's the legal ransom that's connected with the blood of Jesus. As Paul is in this place of prayer and in this place of gratitude, he now focuses on the person and nature of Jesus Christ. He's praying that the church would have a greater knowledge of Jesus. He's thankful for Jesus, and he gives us deep truths about who Christ is. He's the image of the invisible God. This is deep if you stop and think about it. He's the image of the invisible God. You can't see the Father. It's not that the Father is unknowable, but we can't see the Father. But God chose for his Son to come in human flesh to perfectly represent the Father. In the Greek and the Hebrew, this is not the word to say that the Son resembles the Father. So I look a lot like my dad. I resemble my father. That's a completely different Greek and Hebrew word. This is saying an exact representation of the father. To the point where Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is the express image of the father. The idea in the language is if you were to take a coin and put it into a piece of clay and it was an exact replication, it was an exact duplication. I have found in my walk with the Lord and in talking with a lot of other people, it's the same stumbling block. People say, it's so easy for me to relate to Christ, but I have such a difficult time relating to the father. And Jesus' whole purpose was to show us the Father. And if you appreciate Christ and can approach Christ, then we should be able to apply that with the character and the nature of the Father. What we see of Christ in the Gospels is the complete and perfect representation of the Father so that we could go to the Father with confidence. When Jesus was teaching us how to pray, he taught us to begin with our Father, which art in heaven. It was his desire to bring us deep into that father relationship. So if you trust Christ and you appreciate Christ, then that should correlate into our connection with the father. Also, how many times have people said, I love Jesus, 
but I don't believe in God. Or I love Jesus, but I don't believe in the Father. That is impossible from a biblical perspective. Because Jesus is God, and he is the express image of the Father. Theologically, if you love and appreciate Jesus, you're going to love and appreciate the Father. Goes on to say, the firstborn over all creation. This speaks that Christ is supreme over all of creation. What this doesn't mean is that Jesus was created some point in history. And this begins to address the false teaching in Colossae. There was this false teaching in the early church that Jesus was created. That some point he came into existence. But Jesus is God and has always been. So this statement isn't saying that Christ was created. It's saying that he is supreme over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. This is in direct reference to Christ, that he created all things. All things were created in heaven and on earth by Christ. David Guzik, in his commentary, gives us some things to contemplate about the creation of Christ. I would like to point them out to you. Comets have vapor trails up to 10,000 miles long. So a comet has a vapor trail of 10,000 miles long. If you could capture all the vapor and put it in a bottle, the amount of vapor actually present in the bottle would take up less than one cubic inch of space. That is incredible. God takes something that could be crunched down into one cubic inch of space and stretches it out for 10,000 miles. Try that one on for size. Saturn's rings are 500,000 miles in circumference, but only a foot thick. 500,000 miles in circumference, but only one foot thick. God's like, I'm just creative. I can do that. I'm make a really long, long line that's only one foot thick. The star Antares is 60,000 times larger than our sun. If the sun were the size of a softball, the star in Terrace would be the size of a house. Jesus spoke that into existence. Boom! There it is, in Terrace. A star known as LP327-186 is called the White Dwarf. It's smaller than the state of Texas. Texans are happy about that. Yet it's so dense that if a cubic inch of it were brought to earth, it would weigh more than 1.5 million tons. So though it's a really small star, it is buff. You know what I'm saying? A lot of muscle packed in that little dwarf. The earth travels around the sun about eight times the speed of a bullet fired from a gun. There are more insects in one square mile of rural land than there are humans on the entire earth. That's incredible, and they've each got a job to do. Bees make their own air conditioning. When the weather gets hot and threatens to melt the wax in the hive, one group of bees will go to the entrance of the hive, and another will stay inside. Then they will flap their wings all together, making a cross draft that pulls the hot air out of the hive and draws cooler air inside. So God's just blowing our minds. He's like, here's a huge star that you can't even comprehend its size, and then I'm going to make bees have their own air conditioning system, you know? 
A single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information, just one human chromosome. How much information of that? If written in ordinary books, in ordinary language, it would take about 4,000 volumes. And that's just the information in one human chromosome. He's the creator of all things. I know these are fascinating things that I've just shared, but you know what tends to blow my, my, my mind more about the creation of God? I was studying these things in the library, and it was moving me to some degree. Then I walked outside in the parking lot and looked up at the clouds, and it moved me in a far greater degree. When you experience God's creation and you just stop and pause for a second, you're like, wow, God created these clouds tonight with the beauty of the light coming through. You know, you hold your wife's hand and you think of, man, God created my wife. When you look your kids in the eye, God created them. And that gives us this great appreciation for Christ as the creator. John 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is clearly God. This is stating the deity of Christ and Christ as the creator. Goes on to say, He created the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. This may blow your mind a little bit, but Christ created the angels with a capacity of free will from which we get Satan and the fallen angels. So that's stated here in this verse. He created the visible and the invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. It wasn't that he chose for them to be evil, but he created them with the capacity to worship. And with the capacity of the worship has the opportunity to choose to reject God. All things were created through him and for him. He's the source of all creation and he is the purpose of creation. Maybe tonight you're wondering, what's my purpose? I got to discover my purpose. Your purpose is to know Christ. Your purpose is to be a worshiper. We sang the worship song tonight. It's your breath in my lungs. You gave me life. You're the creator. So I'll, I'll praise you. The reason that we have being is to worship the Lord, is to serve the Lord, is to know the Lord. And when we're walking in that purpose, that's when we'll have our greatest joy. So there it's solved for us. The word of God tonight, that was worth your drive here. It was worth your cost of admission. (laughs) Oh, wait, it's free. That's our purpose in life. We're going to go into verse 17 and 18. And he is before all things, the supremacy of Christ. Now, please understand this. He being before all things is a statement of fact of truth. He is before all things, whether I realize it or not. I experience the blessingness of it if I put him as the number one in my life. And in him, all things consist. Literally, that he holds all things together. Christ right now is holding all things together. This is from a scientific journal. It writes about an atom. And inside of an atom, we have neutrons and protons. Scientists are blown away how an atom is held together because 
A neutron, like it describes, is neutral in its charge. It's just neutral. It doesn't, doesn't have a charge, positive or negative. Protons have a positive charge that repel each other. So how are these atoms together? In scientific journals, they describe it as a strong force. A strong force holds these atoms together, but they can't explain it because an atom is filled with protons and neutrons. We know what that strong force is. It's Jesus himself. He's literally holding all things together. Through him, all things consist. If God wanted to, all he'd have to do is release his hand and everything would dissipate. Everything would be destroyed. So this should be a tremendous encouragement to you and to me. If God can hold all the atoms of the world together, he can hold our lives together as well. It's all in his hands. In him, all things consist. In verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. For him to be the head means that he has preeminence, supremacy, that we look to him, that we take our direction from him. We're his body. He's the head. May we never forget that he's the head. May a person, a man or woman, never try to take that spot, take that position. And may we never put a person in that position. You've probably heard me say this before, but you need to look to Jesus. Your faith is in Jesus. It's not in believers. Believers will let you down. We are sinful. No one is Christ but Christ. And I know that seems very simple, but it's easy for us to put people on a pedestal, to look to a mentor, to look to a pastor, to look to a teacher or an author or a worship leader or an artist. No, we're all part of the body. We're thankful for the body, but there's one head, amen? So you follow Jesus, you look to Jesus, you take your marching orders from Jesus. He's the head of the body. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Christ is not only the firstborn of creation, but also the firstborn from the dead. He wasn't the first to rise from the dead, but he was the first to rise from the dead and never to return to the grave to be raised up to everlasting life. And we end with this, that in all things, he may have preeminence. Fortified in Christ is for Christ to be preeminent. We are the strongest we will ever be in this life. We are the most fortified we will ever be in this life when we allow Christ to have preeminence. We say, you are number one, and number two is nowhere close. It's easy for churches to somehow get off the topic of Jesus. Where we lose the message, we lose the Savior, we lose the appreciation for Christ. Somehow this church in Colossae had moved a step away from Christ, and Paul now is reminding them once again, Jesus needs to be your focus. Jesus needs to have preeminence. In our lives, we will wrestle, because we're human and sinful, of taking the gifts that God gives and putting them before the giver, Jesus Christ. So God may bless you in your marriage. He may bless you with kids, bless you in your job, bless you in ministry. And over time, we can easily allow those things to start to be number one instead of the Lord. And can we say with confidence, Jesus, I have placed you as being preeminent in my life. You are number one. You are my God. There's none like you. 
There's no one else that can provide salvation. You are my savior. You're my cornerstone. We have to choose that every day of our lives. Every day of our lives. Jesus, you're number one. Jesus, you're preeminent. So church, as we end this service, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be in awe of Jesus. Amen? Let's once again have our minds blown of Jesus, that he is the creator of the universe, that he is the invisible, the express image of the Father, the image of the invisible God, the things that we've read and worship the Lord. A great opportunity to do that at the communion table, to come and really rejoice in who Christ is. Let's stand and let's pray together. Jesus, we do uh, worship you and stand in awe of you. And like the Church of Colossae, it's so easy for us to get our attention off of you. We want to be in awe of you as the Creator, as our Savior, as the express image of the Father. We thank you that you hold all things together. We declare you the head of the church. We look to you tonight. God, would you meet us at the communion table? In Jesus' name, amen.